This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. In the last few months, a group of Dutch investigative reporters have been doing a great job publishing various stories on what Shell knew and when. They have a project called the Shell Papers. It is on the Platform for Authentic Journalism in the Netherlands, which is a collaborative formed by four investigative journalists for the purposes of digging into things exactly like this. I'm joined today by two of those journalists. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So my name is uh, Alexander Beuner. I'm an investigative journalist for a platform Authentieke Journalistiek from the Netherlands. And my name is uh, Jillis Must. Uh, I'm also an investigative reporter at the Platform for Authentic Journalism. And what is the Platform for Authentic Journalism? Uh, Yeah, the the platform, we are a collective of four uh, investigative reporters. Uh, We started out about five years ago because we wanted to contribute to certain undervalued topics within the Dutch media world. So most of all, we focused in the beginning on uh, complex issues like trade agreements and their impacts on on the environment and and society in general. And then we moved on bit by bit towards lobbying because lobbying was also like a big part of, uh, of the whole TTIP and free trade negotiations. Right. And from lobbying, we sort of moved on uh, naturally almost to uh, climate change, uh, seeing <laughs> that this is uh, yeah. the most lobbied topic uh, probably uh, at this moment. We're going to talk about some of their latest findings, including in particular Shell's direct funding of one well-known climate denier in the Netherlands. Sounds to me like this guy was sort of the Fred Singer of Holland. That story and more after a message from this episode's sponsor. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to (laughs) happen. But one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. 
I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes, so it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again thanks to EarthBreeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and EcoSheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40 for zero. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. year ago, we started the Shell Papers, where we wanted to do a FOIA request uh, regarding about 15 years of documents regarding communication between the Dutch government and Royal Dutch Shell in order to see, like, structurally what kind of cooperation exists between uh, Shell uh, and the Dutch state. So we wanted to see, like, in what ways does Shell influence Dutch policy? Mm-hmm. How did you kind of come upon the person who's at the center of your latest investigation? Yeah, we, we investigated uh, Fritz Butcher, uh, a man who we didn't know actually before our investigation. <laughs> but Fritz Butcher is generally uh, known or was known in the 90s as uh, one of the founders of the climate skeptic movement in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, he was known as one of the founders of the Club of Rome, which was founded in 1968 and 
warned against the uh, excessive economic growth with its uh, famous report, uh, Limits to Growth. Mm -hmm. So he was in general a uh, well-known scientist, uh, professor in chemistry, and he actually got involved in the climate debate in the 90s through his own articles and lectures. He appeared on television and the newspapers and radio interviews. And yeah, he was one of the first known climate skeptics, which in the first decade when, when the topic became a, a hot issue in, uh, in, in global politics. So That's an interesting trajectory, though, from the Club of Rome to climate skeptic. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Always fascinating, uh, fascinated us because it seemed a bit contradictory to to be first right. part of a group which warned against too much excessive economic growth, and then to be to seem to be on the other side of the debate. Right. Um, but yeah, th this is an interesting history as well. It seemed like what we know from people who actually know him from the Club of Rome, who have also written about his role in this club, is that he within this club or, or this informal network, he was also part of the more conservative uh, uh, wing, let's say, of the, within, this, uh, within this network. So it, it was not necessarily contradictory that within this club, he already also took a position where he actually kind of downplayed the panic that followed the publication of the, uh, of the first report. So, mm. Especially within the Netherlands, this Club of Rome had a huge impact. Uh, it became like a media hype, in the words of uh, Fritz Butcher. Mm -hmm. And he was actually a bit annoyed by this. We see this also in his personal archive. that He, was, he didn't like this, this panic. And this was like the first time that he became an outspoken, actually a critic of, of the environmental movement, which although he was part of the group, uh, he, he also took a stance against the environmental move movement which used this report to call for you know a government interference in in business he was pro-market right. so he wanted businesses to choose to limit growth themselves yeah some self-restraint <laughs> right he, okay. he mostly sure. focused also uh, <laughs> uh, in his club of rome activities his, his whole point was that there's no such thing as well there is such a thing as depletion of resources but the problem is is that we cannot access uh, a lot of those. So we need to develop more technology in order to reach uh, oil and gas or coal uh, in places that are thus far unreachable. Interesting. That's really interesting. Okay, so did you get a sense of how he sort of got into the climate skeptic movement in the 90s? Yeah, well, he, actually he was involved or interested in the topic already since the end of the 70s. Mm. 1979, as I understand it, there was already an international conference about it and uh, some attention to it. So he was interested in this debate from the beginning. And this was still at a time when he uh, combined his uh, work as an academic with advisory work for Royal Dutch Shell. So he has always combined this during his career. He was at the same time uh, a professor and also part-time advisor of Board of Royal Dutch Shell regarding research, their, their research policy. So 
he worked for Shell from 1953 to 1983, so, so for wow. more or less. And he was he was familiar with uh, you know the heads, uh, the, the the main CEOs. You know he considered them to be his personal friends. At the end of the 70s, this, there was a discussion about uh, the greenhouse effect beginning. Mm-hmm. So he got involved in uh, immediately and also supported by Shell already in 1979. The first sign of support from Royal Dutch Shell to him regarding the greenhouse effect is actually from 1979 when Shell financed the small research of Fritz Butcher into the greenhouse effect to see what was right and what was wrong about this theory, as he would call it. And this was actually already the first time when he started to develop his skeptic uh, arguments and, and vision and we see from uh, personal notes in his personal archive that he you know he had this skeptic theory based on the Gaia theory of J- James Lovelock uh, believing in the self-regulating powers of planet earth and uh, <laughs> you know believing in the in the positive feedback effects that but he was never a climate sci- scientist he was a right was a professor in chemistry so but he started to read in the 80s as well the literature from american climate skeptics richard linson and we wow. already knew uh, you know people like fred singer and mm-hmm. other american skeptics which you have talked about in your podcast as well he knew them from international policy circles like the OECD for which he was also a, a delegate so he was familiar with the American skeptics and he he followed them but he didn't really became a vocal critic of the climate scientist until 1989 more or less what we found to be his CO2 pro- project as he called it a, like a big skeptic project which uh, ran which he ran for almost a decade mm-hmm. that started in 1989 Interesting. And did the funding for that come from Shell as well? Yes. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's our main discovery. So, and the biggest surprise to us because, you know, we started this research just to investigate, to write kind of like a background article about what is already known about Shell's role in the climate debate. And we didn't we didn't expect to find this kind of direct support to climate skeptics because. In general, Shell is like known as as more like a, unlike Exxon, you know, like a like a company which has a bit of attention for the environment and which isn't that aggressive in funding, you know, climate denialism. That's why we didn't expect to find this kind of direct support. But his yeah. his personal archive, Fritz Butcher, he died in two thousand eight, so he left his archive in the in the city of Harlem in the in a small archive, 156 boxes, <laughs> ports of meetings and, and, and letters and personal notes. Fascinating to read. But yeah, the, uh, the story that, that we discovered in his archive is that he was supported from the very beginning by Shell to, to start this CO2 project, to, to get involved publicly in the climate debate be critical about about climate science and the IPCC. And he received direct financial support for this as well from 1990 to 1998, around 1 million gillens. So that's like 800,000 euros today. 
more or wow, less. Wow, wow. And can you talk a little bit more about what this, this carbon project of his was? Did he, I think I read in your story that he was one of these guys who pushed the idea that, you know, more CO2 just means more plants on earth and that's a good thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. That was his, his favorite uh, argument was that CO2 is, is a blessing because yes. plants uh, use it to grow. Uh, he also referred to uh, uh, garden houses and how they add CO2 in order to stimulate the growth of plants and things like that. So that was one of his uh, favorite talking points when it came yeah. to uh, sort of the, the blessings of CO2 because he hated the way that CO2 uh, was portrayed in the media as if it was like toxic or poisonous or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. uh, making the claim that it's uh, yeah, essential for life on earth, which is of course true, but right. uh, not, not the issue. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, um, what kinds of, of things was he doing through this project? Well, the, the, the type of things that he did was mostly, well, getting himself uh, in the public eye. So he, he mm-hmm. wrote articles, published several books, and, and became like a, the, the, the spo- a spokesperson for the climate skeptic movement as it was uh, growing then in the 90s. And in 1996, he, he, in one of his notes, he says that he's become the opposition leader of the, of the climate skeptic movement uh, in the Netherlands. And so he, for example, was invited uh, for a parliamentary commission that was charged in 1995 by the Dutch government in order to sort of see like oh, climate change, what is it and what are we supposed to do about it? He said uh, things in the, in the same line as uh, CO2 is good for plants. And those were the quotes that uh, also made it to like the, the Dutch national news. But on the other hand, he was maybe even more influential in his own network, basically. Mm-hmm. So this obituary he had throughout his life, he had several, he was on the board of, of several big Dutch companies. And the, the way that he works is like, he would write an article or publish a book. He would send it to his, uh, his friends in the boardrooms, and then they would use it again to yeah, lobby towards politicians against taking measurements in order to uh, to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, for example, like there are uh, letters in the archive uh, between Fritz Butcher and uh, Karl Heinz Bucho, who was then part of the board of directors of Bayer, the the, the big uh, German right. chemical company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Bucho writes in response to receiving his book, he's very enthusiastic about the book. Uh, that he sent it through to the Dutch Minister of the Environment. So I think it's, it's sort of similar towards the way that climate skeptics have worked in general. So you write a, an article or a book that has some scientific weight to it. You send that uh, to your friends and they use it then to start lobbying or say that, hey, there's so much doubts about climate change. You shouldn't take any measures to reduce CO2 emissions because we don't even know if those measures are necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I um, have spent a lot of time studying these guys because I find them interesting for just from like a psychological standpoint too. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you found anything that, that indicated sort of an, you know, what the, the ideological underpinning of his work was or, or, you know, like what was driving him beyond just, you know, getting money from Shell and, and whoever else. Well, the, the interesting thing with Butcher is that he actually he, he did not receive the money himself, uh, <laughs> or he, he like he worked uh, he worked for free basically. Yeah. He was already uh, retired. He was eighty years old when the, when this project started, 
Wow. And the money that he received, he used it to pay his two assistants and to cover like travel expenses and, uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So he, he, you can consider him as a, like a true believer when it came to his uh, a believer in his own story when it came to uh, to climate change. Yeah. But also like it's a bit strange because he also like this this whole project. It lasts for nine years and it lasts only during the time that these companies are willing to pay for it. So when in 1998 the the funding stops, he also stops working on the CO2 project. Uh, and starts working on, on on other advisory work. So, yes, he was a true believer, but also like I think vulnerable for the the, the type of uh, sort of uh, how do you say the prestige that came along with it. So the CEOs in these companies they are worried about climate change. They need somebody to to tell another story basically, or a story that fits them better. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw this guy, and so he was useful. And for Butcher, it was like, I matter. I still matter. I've been through my whole life. I've been in these boardrooms and been with all these important people. After right. I retired, this sort of stopped. And, and this was a way for him to sort of get back in the, in the spotlight. Uh, right. That makes sense. That's really yeah. interesting. You know, what was the impact of his work in terms of government policy or anything? Like, did you, did you find any evidence of him having an impact there? Yeah, it's it's um, you know the the opinions are uh, they vary a little bit, mm-hmm. but uh, in general, like people who knew him personally, they or or worked in government at the time, uh, some high policymakers they say well he had a huge influence just because he had such a high standing, uh, a, a big reputation. He knew everybody, everybody knew him. Mm-hmm. People who were all looking for an alternative story. They came to Butcher, and so he had a huge informal influence. Also, because he had this reputation of, you know, being one of the founders of the Club of Rome. So people were like, you know, if he says it, there must be some. Tr- you know, he he isn't. Right. He had the image of of being an, you know, an environmentally uh, aware uh, scientist. So this reputation helped him a lot. And this is actually also. Uh, acknowledged in in uh, one one fascinating report of a meeting with his main contact within Royal Dutch Shell, uh, Huub van Engelshoven. So van Engelshoven tells uh, Butcher, according to this report, that he has uh, more influence as a scientist when he talks about climate than when you know the CEOs of the companies uh, talk about it. So they were well aware that his reputation as a scientist, as an independent scientist, uh, helped to get his message across. And he wasn't on television and, and, you know, radio interviews. Other people say, well, you shouldn't overestimate it. Uh, it's really difficult, difficult to measure in general. But if, if we look in general to how the media in the Netherlands writes about this topic, we also see that in general, the Dutch media has, you know, given ample space to the a skeptic point of view there are several reports about this one report says that uh, like 18 percent of the articles in dutch media are you know skeptical which is of course not representative of, of you know the opinions within the scientific community right if you look in the netherlands it's, it's just a handful of people like butcher and the people who are active today you know, they they can all all kind of directly or indirectly be linked to him. So, 
you know, Fritz Butcher, his influence is not only because he was present in the media, but, but also because he mentored like a new generation. And we, mm-hmm. see, we see this also in his archive that he had a lot of contact with another journalist, Simon Rosendahl, who still writes today and is like one of the best known skeptics mm-hmm. until recently. Now he starts to uh, acknowledge that the IPCC is actually right, but he followed the mission of, uh, of Fritz Butcher and he was yeah. for one of the biggest... Uh, magazines of the Netherlands. He, he has written like dozens of articles about this, and uh, with a, with an enormous reach. Another, you know, well-known skeptic, Hans Laboom, still active today. You know, still active, uh, collaborating with the current climate skeptic groups like Clintel, which is a new organization. He was also personally mentored by Fritz Butcher. So this handful of people who has you know reached a huge audience. They can all kind of be be linked to to Butcher, and they have all, well, many of them have been mentored by him to spread this message and to continue his fight, as he would uh, call it himself. that's it for this time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll drop links to various stories that have come out of the Shell Papers reporting in our show notes. Be sure to check those out. One thing to note, uh, after our interview, Alexander sent me an email clarifying that it wasn't just Shell that was funding this butcher guy. There were 24 other firms that were also funding his climate skepticism. So he wanted to, to be clear that it wasn't solely a Shell campaign. However, they were really surprised to find that Shell had been directly funding this guy in any way at all. You can see all the details behind that reporting and many other stories in the links that we'll drop in the show notes today. And a reminder, if you haven't yet signed up for one of our various membership options, I highly recommend doing that in the next few weeks so that you can be amongst the first to listen to our next investigative series. It is a zinger. Speaking of which, a big shout out to our most recent Patreon sponsors. They are Sarah Hale, Civil Politics Radio, Stefan, Stephanie Black, Melissa Hoffer, David, Ian McCauley, and Patricia Hine. Thank you guys. Your support keeps us going. It is paying for part of the production of that next season I mentioned. So really very much appreciated. We are still keeping the COVID climate policy tracker going on our website as well. And we'll have a lot of new stories and series coming up on the website for you there too. Members get early access to a lot of those stories, plus bonus content, both in print and in audio. You also get ad-free podcast episodes. And some of our membership levels now come with merchandise. You can get a drilled coffee cup. We also have a new store launching soon with that stuff. So if you just want a mug without the membership, you'll be able to do that too. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.